as I turn up the collar on my favorite winter coat. This wind is blowing my mind. I see the kids in the street with not enough to eat. Who am I to be blind, pretending not to see their need? A summer's disregard, a broken bottle top, and a one-man soul. They follow each other on the wind, you know, cause they got nowhere. So what you just heard is from a movie clip from the movie Joyful Noise that was created in 2012. The song that Kiki Palmer sings should be really familiar to most everyone through Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror, which was released in 1987. Hi everyone, I'm Malia Young. And I'm Kalia Souza. We're part of the Planning and Pop Culture class. This class is an exploration of planning issues in film, song, and literature. And to kick off this conversation... We're going to do a little dissection of the song that you just heard. So, Malia, what are your thoughts on this song? Well, the song is honestly just about the community connections and the relationships. Yes, yes. That we're connected through the issues we face together. The mention of hunger in the song. The access of food is relevant today as it was in 1987. When the song was created, it does not go away. It really doesn't. And the interesting thing is that food is relationship. Food is community, and in fact, food is the original center of community. Listen to this clip from Carolyn Steele's TED Talk. And in fact, if you look at the map of any city uh, built before the industrial age, you can trace food coming into it. You can actually see how it was physically shaped by food, both by reading the names of the streets, which give you a lot of clues. Friday Street on the previous slide was where you went to buy your fish on a Friday. But also, you have to imagine it full of food because the streets and the public spaces were the only places where food was bought and sold. And if we look at an image of Smithfield in 1830, you can see that it would have been very difficult to live in a city like this and be unaware of where your food came from. In fact, if you were having Sunday lunch, the chances were it was moving or bleating outside your window about three days earlier. So this was obviously an organic city, part of an organic life. So you see, food used to be the social core of the community. The market was the meeting place. People bought and sold at the market, and it was a social event. Now it's just anonymous. Yeah, so we can relate the, so the lines of Michael Jackson's song that go, A summer's disregard, a broken bottle top, and a one-man soul. They follow each other on the wind you know, because they got nowhere to go. This is exactly how our relationship with food has changed. We're not connected to it no, anymore. Not. We don't value it. We don't trust it. We throw it away as if it's the broken model tap. It's aimless. It's just lacking meaning. And I couldn't agree with you more. Let's give everybody a little bit of a historical perspective on this problem. This whole breakdown happened because we changed the way we thought about city planning. Even back to ancient Rome, the city was organized around food systems how food was supplied in the city, when and where, but then we changed how we access food within food transportation systems. Switching from railway to roads meant that food could easily move beyond its point of origin, and in this whole process, food was no longer local, and it lost its identity. We also began to separate our growing spaces from our living spaces, which only deepened the divide and contributed to the demise of the real community. 
That reminds me of another great TED Talk with Mark Bittman, who is just a magazine, Time Magazine food columnist. Yeah, and I've heard that one, yeah. Yeah, he definitely says the exact same things, that with a new and improved transportation meant that both people and food could live further away from the city centers. Mm-hmm. As the cities grew, the distance between people and food grew as well. You know what, let's listen to a small clip of Mark Bittman's TED Talk speech. <laughs> It's hard to imagine. People grew food, and they ate food. And again, everyone ate local. In New York, an orange was a common Christmas present because it came all the way from Florida. From the 30s on, road systems expanded. Trucks took the place of railroads. Fresh food began to travel more. Oranges became common in New York. The South and West became agricultural hubs, and in other parts of the country, suburbs took over farmland. The effects of this are well known. They're everywhere. And the death of family farms is part of this puzzle, as is <clears throat> almost everything. This really created the food deserts, especially at the city centers, where the market was the heart of the community. It once thrived. Exactly. So now, food access is an issue in inner cities, and these populations are at a disadvantage. Exactly. And that's not the only problem. It continues to the rural communities as well. Yeah, a lot of people don't really think about that. Yeah, the suburbs, they just took the farmland that was crucial for the livelihoods of rural communities. In order to survive, farmers had to broaden their market beyond the local community. And now we have globalization. Yeah, which that only helped to further the separation of communities with their local food identity. Mm -hmm. People left the rural communities for the city looking for opportunity and the rural communities can no longer feed itself. So you see that food is universal. It's not an urban problem. It's not a rural problem. It's a community problem. But we'll look a little closer now at the urban and rural context of our relationship with food and the shaping of community. Thank you, Kalia and Malia, for that insightful discussion. Hello, everybody. My name is Gabriel Estes. I'll be talking to you today about food in our urban communities. It's funny when we think about the arbitrary nature of distinctions, how one thing can go from good to bad or bad to good in a moment's notice. Well, for me, with regards to this podcast, how the problem can become the solution or the solution can become the problem. When it comes to food, I've been pretty lucky my entire life. Grew up in a pretty much blue-collar family and never really wanted for much. In my first attendance at college at the University of Chicago, approximately in the year 2000, I volunteered in a elementary school, uh, Woodlawn Elementary. Anyway, I installed computer networks so underprivileged schools could have access to the Internet. And the first time I went to this classroom, I thought it'd be smart to bring a bag of Snickers. I passed them out, and I thought everything was okay, but at the end of the day, the teacher came up to me and pretty seriously asked me to never do that again, and continued to explain why, and I learned at that time that it was pretty feasible that one or more of those kids were going to get me some sort of physical altercation for that Snickers bar by the end of the day. So, in that moment, my solution became a problem. And I guess if a solution can become a problem, then a problem can become a solution. That happened for one man by the name of Ron Finley, known as the Gorilla Gardener from South Los Angeles. Ron Finley represents an individual that exploits 
this seemingly contradictory nature of things for the purpose of a disadvantaged community. I live in South Central. This is South Central. Liquor stores, fast food, vacant lots. So the city planners, they get together and they figure they're going to change the name South Central to make it represent something else. So they change it to South Los Angeles. Like this is going to fix what's really going wrong in the city. This is South Los Angeles. <laughs> Liquor stores, fast food, vacant lots. Ron goes on to talk about the social and health-related effects of oversaturation of unhealthy food choices in South Los Angeles to include dialysis centers popping up, obesity at a five-time higher rate than had been previously seen, also a disparity between the health of a community in South Los Angeles and the health of a community just a few miles down the road in Beverly Hills. Just like 26.5 million other Americans, I live in a food desert, South Central Los Angeles, home of the drive-through and the drive-by. Funny thing is, the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-bys. I believe what happened to Ron was he had a moment of insight, and in that moment of insight, he changed his mind. Instead of being mad or looking around at his environment and seeing the degradation, the vacant lots, the fast food, he decided to do something about it. So, so I, I, I figured that the, the problem is the solution. Food is the problem, and food is the solution. And in one defiant act, Ron planted a garden on one vacant parkway in South Los Angeles. It was beautiful. People loved it. Initially, everything was great, but eventually somebody complains. Somebody always complains. The city threatened Ron with citation and arrest. Ron said, bring it on. Eventually, Ron's action was picked up by the LA Times and became its own force, so to speak. L.A. Green Gowns was born, and they now focus and are a growing effort to promote community stability through community-based food production and aesthetic gardening. L.A. leads the United States in vacant lots that the city actually owns. They own 26 square miles of vacant lots. That's 20 Central Park. That's enough space to plant 700 million, <laughs> 725 million tomato plants. Why in the hell would they not okay this? What kind of potential lies within our cities? And for that matter, not just our large ones, but our average ones, the disappearing ones, the ones you've never been to. What kind of potential lies in your backyard? What kind of potential lies in any space? I believe it's the potential for change. Change in the way we see food, changing the way we see communities. What we really need to do is we, we need to bridge gaps. And what would happen if we bridged the gap between technology and agriculture? What would happen if we challenged the notion of farms being in vast expanses of nature, being tamed by large industrial beasts? What would happen if we could blend those things? Well, I believe we could make that happen if we could introduce a man by the name of Will Allen to Mr. Ron Finley. Mr. Ron Finley. Will Allen was 
is a former professional basketball player in the American Basketball Association and was raised a farmer um, as a young man. The notion of farming and working the ground never left him his whole life, and while he was in Europe playing basketball, he came across some farming techniques he had never seen before. Uh, intensive growing in small areas and vertically in conjunction with aquaculture produced yields that he only wished he could have seen at his hometown farm when he was a young man. Will took this idea, or Mr. Allen took this idea, back to Silver Spring Drive in Milwaukee and started building his own sustainable farming method, integrating agriculture and aquaculture to create great yields. He started this organization in 1995 called Growing Power Incorporated, and it is a not-for-profit center for urban agriculture training and building community food security systems. Today, it's involved in more than 70 projects and outreach programs in Milwaukee and across the United States and throughout the world. What would happen if we could apply Will's methods to Ron's vision? What would happen if we did that not just in South Los Angeles, but we did that in every major urban center in America? So now that we've talked about the relationship between urban planning and food and pop culture, we're now going to move into a time that we're talking about the rural implications of the same thing. Hi, my name is Gary Fike, and I'm a Master of Architecture student here at Kansas State University. And I'm joined here by my friend Skylar. Hi, yeah, my name is Skylar Brown, and I'm in the Master of Landscape Architecture program here at K-State. And so these are our experiences with the rural industry. Yeah, thanks, Skylar. So Skylar and I are both from rural America, actually rural Kansas. You know, we grew up in different sort of contexts, but both of them would definitely be considered of the genre of the rural American small town. So we bring through this, through our sort of context, the way that we grew up, we bring a lot of sort of uh, just awareness of what it actually means to be and develop and grow in the rural American small town. And so now over the last couple of weeks, as we have been studying this, this topic in our, our planning and pop culture course, we've really been a able to intersect really our experiences with the, the many things that we've been learning about planning and pop culture. So I think it's proven really valuable. And through this time, this brief time together, we want to help walk you through some of the insights and takeaways that we, we have really gleaned from that. So let me begin by just telling you a little bit about my town. I grew up in a town called Wellington, Kansas. So Wellington, Kansas is known to those uh, to our listeners who are aware of Wellington or those who are not, which is pretty much all of you who are not aware of Wellington. We're known as the wheat capital of the world. And so I think that's self-proclaimed, and I don't know if there are actually any metrics that back that up. But what we our claim to fame is that we farm wheat and a lot of it. So growing up town, 7,000 agrarian sort of community, um, I was born and raised there. And so I really saw how the town developed and grew and the role that planning and even, even food and other influences played on the sort of psychological and physical well-being of the community and the people which comprise it. So that's a little bit about Wellington. Skylar, man, why don't you tell us a little bit about Eureka? And so, yeah, so since I'm from Eureka, we have uh, the majority of the income is from the cattle industry or farming and also the oil industry. So with that, we also have a declining population. We have about 3,000 people, 
but we're trying to find a way to work our way back up and really develop a better community around food. So we're going to be discussing the psychological effects of development in these small towns. And so whenever a new town gets like, say, a Subway, a McDonald's or something, there's kind of that sense of accomplishment, kind of as if you've made it. And one of our professors was telling us about how in his hometown, they had recently gotten a Subway and how excited the town was. And they, they had a sense of pride. They were really happy about it. And I can speak to that because my town recently, we had a Sonic, but it was kind of run down, and so they decided to build a new one. And it really started bringing the community together. People were really excited about it. And so that turned into something really big, and it's become one of the popular places in Eureka to go eat. So with this, we have been able to um, create a place for children to go after school, like, like the high schoolers. They all like to travel there and get drinks or get a snack after class uh, once school's out. Another really important uh, business in Eureka would be our local Pizza Hut. And it's actually helped develop more, more community and because of fundraisers for um, cancer patients. I can speak personally to this because my little brother had JMML, which is a form of leukemia. And uh, Pizza Hut there, a bunch of people started doing fundraisers and it actually ended up helping us quite a bit with all of our travel and expenses that went going to Kansas City for treatment. A company that's also failed in Eureka coming down, and that would be McDonald's. We had a McDonald's for a few years that ended up shutting down. A lot of us would say that's because the majority of Eureka's population is older and retired, and they weren't really interested in going to a place like McDonald's because you can sit down there, but it's really not that great of a place, a great of an experience for that. And so they, the older generations in Eureka have really taken to more of the local restaurants and they're okay with going to Pizza Hut because it's a sit-down type of place. There is a little bit of a disruption with fast food in, in my hometown, at least. And so I've seen it being a benefit, but also as a disappointment in the area. Yeah, Skylar, I can resonate with that a ton, coming from a, a town. You know, Wellington's a good amount larger than Eureka. Um, but yeah, I can resonate with those things. How the psychological effects and really environment and place of a small town can be wrapped up in these fast food restaurants. And I know that that is true in Wellington, it's true in Eureka. And so what I'd like to talk to you next, Skylar just talked to you about the psychological effects. I want to talk to you about the physical effects of food and planning in the American small town. I'm going to speak specifically from the background of Wellington and what experiences I have. So let me just give you a brief overview of what it's looked like for food to influence the planning of Wellington, Kansas. So my... Oh, right around 2008 is when something big happened on the landscape of Wellington history. We opened a Walmart Supercenter. And this is like big time for Wellington, Kansas. Walmart Supercenter rolling into town. I mean, it was the talk of the town for, for days, for weeks, for months, and I think it probably still is, so even years. What happened was this, this Walmart opened up near the interstate, near I-35 that heads southbound from Wichita to Oklahoma City. And so it sort of pushed the boundaries of Wellington. And as soon as this large Walmart, this large whale, so to speak, a number of little outcroppings of fast food restaurants began to pop up around the Walmart. And so the way it works now, you see, really along this highway that's running and intersecting I-35, this has become almost one of the main places in, in Wellington, Kansas, for people to, in a very quick and efficient way, get all the materials they need for life and even get all the food they even need for life. And so the the physical effects of planning often revolves around these restaurants. 
Uh, you look at the two uh, highways that intersect in Wellington, and they're, they're all littered with fast food restaurants. And so what that means is because the streetscape and the sense of place in the American small town has developed to just be along these highways, what that's caused is a lot of really depletion of the American small town downtown. You see downtowns today and many small towns are becoming are becoming sort of ghost strips of empty storefronts that, that are a, a shadow or a, and they're hollow from the significance that they once possessed. You can see hints of, of significance and different business titles that are on these buildings, but these buildings typically lie empty in many cases. And even specifically, the idea of food and restaurants in the American downtown, I mean, this is was the the social heartbeat of many of these places. You know, people would go to get their coffees, their breakfasts, their lunches, and they would all intersect in the American downtown in the early 1900s and up through post-World War II. But with the emergence of the accessibility to fast food, that all changed. That all completely changed because now individuals are able to very quickly uh, make runs to get food at an inexpensive rate for their families as they go to their Walmarts and as they go to their other, other big business retail destinations. And so that's one of the implications. You see a lot of, a lot of local business lost because of, the, because of the planning and the way that food is driving that planning. So that was, the, that was the second implication I wanted to talk to you about, being physical effects. Now, I want to talk to you about even biological effects of fast food in the American small town. I think it's become well documented in the last number of years how really consuming massive amounts of fast food can have adverse effects on your physical health. I mean, imagine that. What could be wrong with, with doing that? Uh, but there are many things wrong with doing that. And by doing that, I mean consuming massive amounts of fast food. And so what, what I want to, to do for us is play for you a, a clip from a sample of pop culture from a movie. And this movie might be familiar to many of our listeners, to many of you. It's a movie called Super Size Me. And this movie was a documentary detailing a man's account of trying to eat McDonald's all meals a day for an extended amount of time to see what sort of effects that would cause. And so here we have a, a piece of that documentary. And so I'm going to play this for you. And I want us to lead us in a time of just even reflecting about the significance that consuming this food over an extended period of time can have on our health. I think that fast foods are a major contributor to this epidemic. In 2000, Dr. David Satcher became the first Surgeon General to draw attention to the obesity crisis, declaring it a national epidemic. Now remember, we're supersizing everything. Uh, you go to any place to buy, go to any fast food store, and they're trained to tell you to buy a bigger size. For five cents more, you can get the supersize. So just as Dr. David Satcher said there, he, he labeled it a epidemic. And that's really strong language when you, when you think about it. It's a, he said it's an epidemic, but that is, that is part of reality. The reality is that in a lot of cases in America, not if not the world, but where fast food consumption is at an all-time high, even think of it, thinking of the supersize me movement, just the availability and affordability of really massive amounts of food that is very bad for you over extended periods of time and consumption, it's really been wreaking havoc in small towns and 
So we, I think when we look at pop culture, this, this phenomenon is represented across the board. When you look at movies, music, literature, we can see things based in the American small town. And oftentimes, if you really look at it, the theme of food and its relationship to planning will continue to emerge. Talking about the psychological, talking about the physical and the biological environments of it. And so that is sort of what we wanted to walk through real quick. And now I'm going to turn it over to Skylar, and he's going to help run us through even some more information about what an alternative could be to the way that we do food and planning even now in the American small town. So one of the newest things that we've been seeing recently are farmer's markets, and then there's also this new concept for restaurants called farm to table. Now, I've seen it personally in some grocery stores where they've had signs that say farm to table, but it's not the facts. It's not coming straight from a farm. It's going to a distributor, going, and then coming to the supermarket. It goes through all these processes, so it's honestly a lie what they're saying. But what we need to be looking out for is with these farmer's markets is it's helping like the local economy. You're really giving back to the farmers. They're making more money on what they're growing because they ended up not, they end up not making that much money once they sell to the distributor. And the distributor sells to the grocery store. The grocery store is the one that ends up making the most money out of all of it. And so we're having the farmer's markets that have been popping up. And recently there's been one that's developed in my hometown. And it's become pretty resourceful. Now, there's another concept that's been popping up in a lot of cities and towns and stuff. And even here in Manhattan is the farm-to-table concept. And this farm-to-table concept is the restaurant buying directly from the farmer. They can put in an order of how many crops they want, or they can say specifically, I want this type. And so it really makes uh, it a lot easier on the farmer because they end up making more money. And they also have it regulated so they know like what they need to be making and stuff like that. It's really resourceful for them and also for the restaurant because they can say it's fresh from a farm. And they can say directly what the farm is and even give a definition of the farm and even go visit it whenever they want. And so it's a really good idea that's happening in the industry today and i think it could continue on and be really resourceful in like a small town yeah even even thinking about the possibility in these agrarian small towns to begin to really tap into the natural resources around them to see restaurants and places for community and sort of engagement to sort of organically even be raised up from that context is really exciting to think about and so, Skylar, even thanks for sharing about what's going on in Eureka. Man, that's a, that's exciting. Um, and I would really look forward to seeing something like that in, in Wellington. I, I think that it, not that it's a fix-all, but I really think that could begin to mediate some of the breakdown that we've been seeing in, in planning and food and the different ramifications that all of those things have. So hopefully you enjoyed this little insight into, the, into a, a snapshot of the American small town in relation to planning, food, and pop culture. Now we're going to turn it over as we bring it home. So this is as far as we can go in this broadcast about the issue of food and planning. Really, there's a multitude of other community planning issues concerning food, like the fact that half of our food becomes waste, the obesity epidemic in the United States, environmental degradation of farmlands, and even our own biases and preferences. Yeah, and our ability to feed ourselves will only become more challenging as limited resources become more scarce. As food becomes more scarce, how does that influence our community's identity? Good question. Yeah, we are what we eat. The world is what we eat. The world is shaped by food and is an ordering principle. We can use local food systems to create new community identities and as a design tool to shape our communities difference differently. 
food is planning. But putting value back in food, or by putting value back in food, we can begin to value community life again. We can create communities of purpose where food is no longer just a commodity, but a catalyst for change. Communities can mobilize around food production and distribution to promote well-being and a better quality of life, to strengthen bonds, to create the power structure and allow communities to restore their own power. I don't know about you, but kind of makes me want to get up and go do something about it now, right? No, it definitely makes me want to. So with that said, think about this. What is your community's relationship with food? What is your own relationship with food, with the environment, and with your own community? What are your values? And to achieve the right solution, we have to ask the right questions in the first place. The song that we leave you on, Patience by Nas and Damian Marley, asks you to consider what influences our values, how we interact with our environment, our community, and what kind of spell is mankind under? Everything on the planet, we preserve it and can it. Microwave it and try it. No matter what, we'll survive it. What's you? What's man? What's human? Anything along the land we consume. Eating, deleting, ruin, trying to get paper. first place if this is how we gotta go dang